Welcome to the System Speak podcast. If you would like to support our efforts at sharing our story, fighting stigma about dissociative identity disorder, and educating the community and the world about trauma, please go to our website at www.systemspeak.org and there is a button for donations where you can offer a one-time donation to support the podcast or become an ongoing subscriber. We so appreciate the support, the positive feedback, and you sharing our podcast with others. We are all learning together. Thank you. There is so much to talk about, so let's get started. What I want to explain first is that you are my friend in real life, and we were supposed to meet at the ISSTD conference in California, and we couldn't because of the whole coronavirus. And then the one piece that I've not really talked about a lot on the podcast, which we don't have to spend the whole time talking about, but it is true also that you are a doctor in real life so different than a therapist but I got sick after the trip of California and you were so kind to talk me through it I hardly did anything you 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 were so good about you knew exactly what to do you were just needing reassurance well you were I just want to say again I appreciate it because We've not talked a lot on the podcast. We've not talked about having gotten the virus and how sick we were. And we obviously had a mild case. We were able to stay in the hotel in quarantine. We were not hospitalized or put on a ventilator or anything like that, which they were kind of expecting because we've had lung issues in the past. But we made it through okay, but the fevers were awful. And you made sure that I was drinking and that I was getting my fevers checked and that I was awake and alive, and I just want to say, <laughs> I appreciate that. Oh, you're so kind. You're so brave. I invited you to talk on the podcast because as a medical professional, you have such a different perspective than just only a therapist or just only a survivor like me. And so I loved your take as we were talking about the things that we learned. And at the day of recording this, the first of those episodes have started going up. So the listeners have already heard some of what I've shared, and I just want to go through with what your experience was like. Oh, it was so amazing. (laughs) Was it? It was so amazing. Was it what you expected? Was it what you needed? What was that like for you as a medical doctor? Well, so it's hard because as a medical doctor, our conferences are so different. And I mean, not, I guess it's the focus is so different. And I, it, I've never been to anything like this before. So the experience was very, um, it was so beautiful. <laughs> I have never been surrounded. I mean, I know it was virtual, but I felt like I was surrounded by so many people that truly love humans and are so caring and compassionate and 
they they truly care um, in a way that you know that they're not compensated for. You know, this is coming from the heart. And um, I don't mean to say that my profession is not, you know, there's not people that have um, the caring and compassion because there are, but I think that sometimes um, in our profession, we uh, get so caught up in the science and in the, the, the rush of trying to meet all of the needs of the administration that we, we forget to be human. And um, I, I, again, I'm very much generalizing. I'm not trying to, to, to attack my own at all. But um, it was just beautiful to be at a conference where everybody's goal was to help raise an awareness of how to meet with the people where they are. And they, they, there was a nice abridgment of science and um, and humanistic qualities. And it was just something that I have never, I just have never experienced. It was um, really, really amazing. I think it would have been even better in person, um, but I, I will take it, I will take however we could get it given the circumstances, right? So um, yes, it was just, it was amazing. I'm actually considering joining the ISSTD, even though, I, I feel kind of like a fish out of water because I have um, I don't have a lot of knowledge um, or background um, that I think would have made understanding what was happening in the conference a little bit um, easier. But I will tell you, it was amazing how there were many lecturers that took time to give the background so that I could, it took me a little bit to listen. It's been wonderful because the ISSTD, I don't know if you've done this guys, but uh, the, the, the ISTD will allow us to look at those, those recordings again. And I have taken time to do that because um, on the second or third pass, I have really been able to connect some dots that I just never, never had even been able to do I wouldn't have been able to do it on the first time for sure and um, and for somebody who has not trained at all in behavioral health um, it was very useful to be able to go back and re-listen to those recordings it was very powerful so that's that's exactly true and that's been my experience too and I think that what you shared is so important for several reasons one when we say ISSTD or we talk about ISSTD so often survivors or other clinicians are just thinking like some entity that's out there somewhere and that's why we've been talking on the podcast since this conference of please know and understand that these are real people who love survivors some of them have their own lived experience and their their heart is in caring for people and helping people be fully themselves and I think that's so so important because as survivors our dialogue and our conversation as a community so often focuses on what's wrong with clinicians or what clinicians are not doing right or the trauma experiences we have when that happens all of which are valid all of that is valid so I'm not minimizing that at all But these people, the ones I have met and the ones who presented and the ones I have gotten to know over the last three years through the podcast 
are incredible, incredible humans, and they care so, so much. Yes, I was just dumbfounded, honestly, guys. I just, I had not any idea. I mean, I know that just in my work with, you know, limited, you know, working with therapists to help my patients, I have noticed that in general, you know, it's a, it's a different mentality. It's amazing because what a therapist will do to try to help coordinate care. I mean, they're not getting paid for that time, but they're trying to coordinate the care and they're going above and beyond to try to make sure their patient, you know, I guess clients, um, our patients, uh, get the good care they get. So I've known for a long time that therapists really are, at least my experience have, have been genuine and kind and trying to help their, their, their patients. But, um, I just have never seen it. I guess, I guess part of it is it was in a, it was not in the context of a individual. It was, we were in a conference where these people were talking about general, a general group of people as a whole, like anybody who walks into their office, they had the ability to really show what may be going on for that person in any given time. And that there was such an understanding Um, and it was done so gently. And some people, I mean, there was just one talk for for example, that just blew me out of the water. It was it was amazing. It was Shevitz and Holifer. It was about attackment. Yeah. And they talked about some really oh yeah, it's Hoffeler and Hoffeller and Shevitz. Um and they talked about some really hard stuff that had been talked about in previous lectures. But there was something about, maybe it was because it was at the end of the conference, and so I had had time to kind of process some things, but it was amazing how kind and gentle and humanistic, and they talked about some very scientific principles, but it was done in such a gentleness, and um, they gave real life examples, of course, keeping, you know, there was very, it was very general, there was no details given, I mean, they were very respectful to the people that they had helped, but they, um, they gave some real life examples of how, what their true feelings were about the situation, and, um, and how you could just see in their example, how they were just so real. <laughs> I guess that's the big thing is it was just so real how they truly loved their patients. They wanted the best for them. And um, they, even though they were struggling in the, the process of helping this person, they, it wasn't, I guess, I guess part of it is I need to get background. So like um, in medicine, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because the way at least the way I have been taught is you know there are some people that uh that have taught me in my in my clinicals that you know well it's just a form of manipulation or it's just the person is acting out or it's just a very shaming way of approaching a person who is struggling and that was not even in that was just there was none of that in this lecture, even though they were talking about very difficult um, interactions with patients. They 
they it was all about this person was really hurting and this is what happened and this was my reaction to that person and um and it really was it was an awful experience but and this is how it was so cool dr shevitz was like and this is really cool because you work through it it's it's a really hard thing but part of the therapeutic process is not only just for the patient but the actual provider gets to work through it with the the patient so but it was just it really hit home to me that this isn't about shaming someone and nobody's bad and and um a lot of the behaviors that are problemis, you know, problematic in our in our everyday experience as clinicians, um, I, I'm speaking in the, I guess for everybody, is that it, it's not that these people are bad; they are truly hurting, and in in trying to join in with them and be genuine and um, understanding, uh, you can actually do a lot of healing just because of those those. Um, the ability to have that attachment um, and to have attunement. And I never really, I mean, I've listened to your podcast and I've learned a lot about it, but this conference has really helped solidify how healing attunement can be. Um, and so anyway, that's I, that lecture really just took the cake for me. It really pulled a lot of things together and just the humanistic and gentleness of the approach of the clinicians that spoke really, really taught me a lot. Part of what is powerful to me is that it's because it's congruent with who they are. And Christine Forner, when she presented hers and is there in the presentation giving that information, she is the same person when I'm interviewing her on the podcast or saw her in California. And the the authenticity of who these people are is part of what gives it that level of realness and that depth of not just attunement but the safety because they're really who they say they are and they live and practice what they're teaching and I think that's part of what makes such a difference as well as what you're saying humanistic you mean focused on the person as a person yes right yes right absolutely I think I think in medicine, and again, I don't. I feel bad because I don't want to say that you know all doctors are like this, or. But I think, and, and and I will definitely say that there is more and more being taught in medical school and residencies about treating the whole person, the body, mind, and spirit, and there's a lot more focus on that. I mean, that's one of the reasons of how I chose my profession and where I ended up going to school and such, um, but. It's just, I think the, the, the nuts and bolts of where our foundation is in medicine, it boils down to symptoms and diagnos- diagnostics, and, 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 I, and all of that is very important. Um, it's all important to, to focus in on evidence-based medicine and that sort of thing. I, I, I totally agree with it, and I, that's how I practice, but when that focus is all that there is and there is not a well balance of the human quality and um i think there's a lot lost there and so this conference has really helped solidify that in my mind and will hopefully make me a better clinician for it (laughs) well and i think that's so powerful it's so so powerful we worked in hospitals for years as the behavioral health person 
in the ER and running to do consultations on the floor. And so I know exactly what you're talking about as far as like we would literally get a message or like getting paged like it's 1985 right so carrying pages around and get a page that says you know someone with did someone who says they have did in triage three run down there and deal with it and get them out of here or we would have someone on the floor with pseudo seizures go see why they're lying about this like literally not understanding the trauma at all no no there's no see i think this is this is it is it's a validation thing um i think there is a lot of fear and again i am speaking only in my own experience um with my own colleagues and my own people that i've met through the years in my in my field um i think there's a lot of fear and it's because they don't know how to deal with it. They've never been trained on how to deal with it. Right. They, they're just afraid of it. And if they can't give a pill or they can't offer a solution, they, it just, it creates a lot of conflict within them. So it's easier to just say, this person's being difficult, get them out of my face, <laughs> which I know that sounds so awful, but it's what happens, <laughs> you know, um, uh, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's, it's just, it's the, it's a culture, um, due to people not having an understanding and feeling very unable to really help. And, you know, I think at the heart of it all, no, I shouldn't say all, but most of us go into medicine because we want to help. We want to we want to heal. We want to um, be able to help somebody's life be a little better. We want, you know, there's all of this, um, you know, there's all these expectations we put on ourselves when we go into this field. And again, I get it. I know there are doctors out there that don't feel this way. But for the most part, there is most of us who want to go out and and help people. And when you can't because you don't have the skills or the understanding or the medicine to 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 help this person it it throws you off kilter because unfortunately i think in the culture of medicine most of us feel that if we have not made things a little better i mean even in my work in hospice um even though i, I can't say that my patients survived I was able to offer them something I was able to give them a better life at the very end um, uh, there was something that I could offer them and make their life a little better and when you don't have any knowledge of trauma and you don't you don't you're you're basically your training has been focused on these people are just manipulating you get them out of your your presence um, and not that that's, that's always the case. I, oh, I could get myself in trouble here. Um, but, but I think that in general, in training, when difficult scenarios arise, that's the answer we were given when we didn't have an answer. And, um, and I just think that there's just a lack of understanding, which is why I think the ISTD is such an amazingly powerful organization. If we can get the word out to those people and then, Unfortunately, you know, in my field, we also have this whole duality of pressures. You know, 
the insurance companies kind of drive where doctors can put their time and their energy and there's a drive that you have to see so many patients and you can't spend much time with them because then you're penalized and um you uh you have you know because insurance companies and hospitals in order to stay home open the hospital has to get a certain amount of income i mean it's just we could get into finances and that's not where we need to go that's a whole nother podcast but um but it's just i think you you the problem I would have with some of my colleagues is saying we need to go to this conference to learn about trauma and how to become, how to be able to be present with a patient and give them what they truly need. Um, the first thing you would hear is, well, we don't have time for that. <laughs> and I think that, um, especially in the world of addiction medicine, um, which, by the way, we went to an amazing workshop on Friday about addiction. It, I think it would be so helpful, um, maybe to condense it, maybe to make it like bullet points, because, you know, physicians, you guys, this conference was like way more like we're not used to, <laughs> we are not, we're used to bullet points. <laughs> and um, there was so much of this freestanding and interaction and, and um, again, more humanistic, more, um, uh, less, let more gray, less black and white. Um, and so, uh, I think with physicians, you would probably need to bullet point it and be a little bit more concise, um, show, show some evidence of how do I put this into practice in a primary care office? How do I put this in practice when I'm doing a hospital as a hospitalist? Um, how do I do this, diffuse the situation, um, help the person, uh, regulate. I mean, all of these things I think would be very helpful. Um, but getting the buy-in for a physician who is pulled in so many different directions um, by their organization or their practice or finances or whatever um, is, the I think, going to be the biggest challenge. But I know for me, um, I've always had an interest in how I can really connect to my patients. Um, I really did not have much understanding of trauma or anything of the like, but I always was very curious about patients that nobody really understood why they had the issue. I could see a pattern. I could see, I'm giving like an example would be fibromyalgia. I could see a pattern. I could see um, how different modalities would really help the person, but the medical explanation for it was just not there. And what I learned was all of these missing pieces to that puzzle at the conference. And um, I just think it would, it would really, it would really help if we could open, open the eyes of the medical community a bit um, to, to looking at this, um, at this different version of why people are uh, acting the way they are. And it's not a it's not a shame thing. It's not that they are acting out or manipulating or trying to cause trouble or trying to get attention or whatever it is. It is they are truly hurting and they need they need to be validated. They need to be um, ha they need to have that attunement or any medicine you throw at them is not going to help. When you talk about joining the ISSTD, the experience of that is not just like membership to a society or to a professional organization, but the classes and trainings they offer 
every one of them is very similar to this conference. And oh, wow. all of it, really what it comes down to is that we are clinicians who are used to being present with another in the room and processing with them. And so these presentations are very often so conversational. And yes, there's information they're giving and yes, there's teaching happening, but especially when it's in person, but also in the teleseminars and the trainings that are online, there's so much information that is packed through, but instead of just only the bullet points, it comes through the experience of the process itself, almost like a meta-narrative of therapy. It's fascinating. It is. I was just shocked. Like um, some of the the examples that the clinicians um, gave, um, like uh, for instance, during Pat Ogden's discussion, um, she gave specific um, examples of how it happened in therapy and what that has looked out looked like for her, and um, the types. Yeah, you know, just it was amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, of how powerful that is is to give an example of it actually happening right there and then, you know, um, and what that looks like while you're in the process because that gives you a better understanding I would say for me anyway when I have her describe that um I was able to reflect on my own experience and then be able to say okay yeah I I've seen that I've seen something similar to that I didn't recognize what I was seeing but I could almost put myself in a clinical setting and and experience that just through my past experience. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it does. It's, and I think what you can do is join ISSTD and go through the trainings and learn these things. And then you can translate them for other doctors and you can train them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah, that is a good point. Uh, I have a, <laughs> I have a hard sell where I, <laughs> I, I hate to be that way, but there are so many good-hearted men and women out there that are just so overwhelmed with their own work and what they're doing, and and I get it, and they're brilliant people, brilliant, um, but they, <laughs> oh yes. It um, makes a difference when a doctor gets it, though. I know that so many survivors experience the medical world, not just because of crises in the ER with mental health, but also because it does so impact us neurologically. And so physical yes. symptoms do show up. And yes. so I know that that's a common thread in the community about what their interactions with their doctors are like. But even just speaking from my experiences with my daughter, for example, it changes everything when a doctor understands or can just be present with you in how hard something is or how difficult something is and not just trying to fix it or make it better or take it away or stop it or blame you for causing it or you know it's such a different approach like what you were talking about with humans it just it makes all the difference in the world because i think one of the things that i i was so blessed to have so many good clinicians who taught me about um, being with a person. I mean, I talk about the people who taught me things that I don't want to be like, but there are people who taught me some really good things about there are times in medicine where you can't, it is not your place to fix it. 
there are times in medicine that you need to respect the body and allow the body to do its thing. Um, you know, especially my work in hospice. I love my hospice work. Um, it was it was important to be able to acknowledge that fixing it does not mean making the disease go away or performing some magical spell. You know, that just doesn't happen. And you know, you want to, but that's that's just not your place. It's not it's not your your part of healing. There is being present with the person and allowing them to have the experiences they need to finish their work on the earth. And I think that that has helped because I had so many wonderful clinicians who did my training in hospice. And um, that has helped me understand that there is more to medicine than a pill or um, a therapy or, I mean, and when I speak therapy, it's, you know, like interventions that are radiation or chemotherapy. I think there's there's a lot more to doctoring than, than just what people think of and I've had some pretty cool experiences where and I there was it was interesting I had parts of me who were like oh that is you know you you didn't you didn't do really anything for the patient and but on the flip side I connected with that patient I have one first that came to mind quite a bit when I was listening to Pat Ogden's discussion um, about sensory motor um, therapy and I uh, this person came in with um, lots of movement issues and um, it basically had you know they the, the medical community had given him diagnoses that I mean I'm not going to argue that that wasn't my place to argue it because I wasn't in a position that wasn't my point or my my job at that moment but I was able to connect with him um, to the point where I recognized you know I had I, I honestly, until the conference, I had not really heard much from Pat Ogden other than your podcast, but I had done some reading um, from Peter Levine and um, and just researching that because I do deal with so many people that have uh, chronic pain or um, chronic problems that medically we can't really explain um, and, and medical interventions don't seem to help. And so I had done that kind of research just to see if I could have some understanding. Well, this gentleman comes in and he's having all of this weird motor problems. He can't complete certain tasks. Um, and I'm talking about like simple things like typing on a typewriter or a keyboard, um, using his cell phone, that sort of thing. And, um, and I, uh, I was able to sit there and look at it and, then I, because I, I caught, it was, it was so cool because Peter Levine had talked about specific um, actions that can happen while a person's having these blocks in their movement. And I was able to, to, to see it and recognize, see, that's the, the big thing is you have to be able to recognize it. Um, so I was able to recognize it. And then I was able to ask the appropriate questions in a way that would not be intrusive because that's another big deal is I think that as physicians, we just want to get to the the crux of the problem, well, that's the opposite of what you want to do when somebody's got trauma, right? And so I was able to, to kind of ask some questions about when this, this had all kind of started for him and that sort of thing. And it turns out all of his movement issues came up after a traumatic event. And, um, and even though there was nothing I could do, he was, he was coming in for a situation that had nothing to do with it. So I, it wasn't my job. Like I said, I was not supposed to be involved with any of that, but I just happened to see it. But we connected. And he has come in since then. And when he needs that connection, 
Um, I take care of the medical things that he's coming in for, but we always connect back to that. And he will tell me what he's doing to overcome some of these these things. And um, it's been very fascinating um, how uh, how even though I was just kind of a bystander and I didn't actually do anything to help him, that connection I can tell has been healing for him and honestly for me um, because it's pretty cool to be able to connect with somebody like that even though I honestly don't have any real-world experience with um, having, you know, that exact thing, you know, these motor problems that, you know, keep me from doing my life skills, right? I mean, this is pretty much disabled him. Um, but I was able to connect just because I had done this research for a whole other reason, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, I don't know if you picked up on this, but in the conference, a lot of these clinicians talked about how they stumbled into this field. Like, it wasn't like they said, huh, I want to learn about trauma. I'm going to go out and learn about it so I can do this. It was, they were curious about one little thing and it just trickled in and suddenly they just landed right it's it was very it's interesting how that seemed to be a theme maybe you are mid stumble mid stumble <laughs> yeah exactly i think so i feel like i have i have i've always had the interest of these odd you know idiosyncrasies in medicine that nobody could explain but as i have learned i'm like oh i think i I think I've found something. I think I've found an answer to this. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, I um, Oh, and have you ever read anything about Gabor Mate? Uh, he's an author of The Body Says No. It's, it's a book, and honestly, I have not read it recently, so I could probably be saying this wrong, but it's a book. He talks about, he's an internist, and he talks about how the body... You know, again, echoing from the conference, the body holds all of this. And people's patterns of behavior then affect how the body functions. And you can, he's actually done all kinds of research on how the, it's a connection between the brain, so the neuropsycho-endocrine system, and how it affects the autoimmune diseases and cancer and, and all of this stuff. And it has really, between that and the Body Keep score, has really helped me um, really focus on when I see a patient come into my office, I don't just focus on, oh, you have pain in this location. I think, oh, as I've become more educated, I've tried to use certain questioning just to kind of get a gist. You know, I mean, not all of these people have trauma, of course. Um, but it's surprising how many have. Doing a quick screening that takes less than a minute, I can usually have a good idea. Does this person need to get behavioral health help? Or is this person solely more, at least based on the initial screening, more something that I need to focus more on just the medical itself? Gabor Mate has really helped me realize that this is a huge, a huge portion of our medicine that just honestly, we have not been trained on. Um, I know it's new research. I know that, you know, some of my my colleagues may think, oh, it's you know, we don't really know if that's true. What you know, whatever. But there is research out there, and if you look at um, studies, you see that there is. I mean, any rheumatologist would would say that a lot of his patients have had hard lives. I mean, we look at um, indigenous people 
um, they tend to have more trauma. Now, I mean, of course, of course, that is totally a generalization. But in general, they 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 have you know they're more in more rural areas. It's a difficult lifestyle. There's financial issues and there's historical trauma. Yes. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you put all of that together. And you will see in these indigenous populations, the, the rates of autoimmune diseases are atrocious. I mean, just off the charts. And, um, and I'm not talking about just one location. I've worked in multiple places. And you will see this as a trend across the board. And it was really cool in Lowenstein's lecture about uh, dissociative amnesia. He actually, it was really awesome. He put together the ACE study. So let me back up for a little bit. His um, his lecture was about dissociative amnesia, and he t- kind of gave a history, kind of like you did in one of your podcasts. You kind of gave some background about, shen- um, I'm going to probably, because I, 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 this is all new to me, so I may mess up these names, but Shanae and, and Charcot and Freud and all of these people, right? And he he kind of gave a history of all that. And then he gave some more recent literature. And one of those was the ACE study. And it was really awesome because in that lecture, he gave the study and gave the meta-analysis of how they came across all of their, their, their data. And then he started putting, like, I would say there were probably 15 or 20 slides of A score higher than five, um, you know, is you would look at the A score higher than five and A score of zero, and you would see the opposites. So, for example, suicidality. If A score was greater than four, it was off the charts. If A score was zero, it was just very minute. And you saw this trend, and it had to do with lifespan. If they had one on um, anxiolytics that were prescribed, alcoholism, liver problems, and these were not all alcoholic liver issues. It was um, autoimmune and um, uh, viral and all these other causes. Um, and so you start you start looking at the research and how there's a lot more because that adverse childhood experience study shows there is so much linkage that we don't completely understand. And we there's just so much there that it's just hard to say you it's hard to just just ignore, you know? <laughs> if you're if you see that study, you can't just say, Oh, you know, that's just chance. When you see you know, fifteen to twenty slides of you look at the score that's high and you see the problem is really high and you look at the the people who have had minimal traumas and they they don't have as you know that population didn't have that many um many of that issue um it's just hard to to ignore that and to 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 write it away as oh that's just statistics or the study wasn't done right or whatever because especially because the first childhood experience research that i saw or that i've looked at again i'm not I have not done detailed research on this, but just from what I could tell, it was a pretty decent sized study and and there was a lot of information that came from it, right? Um, it was it was pretty powerful that when he started putting up all those slides. Significant bullet points. Significant, yes, exactly. <laughs> Significant bullet points that someday when I become an expert I'm gonna teach my 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 colleagues. <laughs> This conversation will continue in another episode. Thank you for listening.
Thank you for joining us with System Speak, a podcast about dissociative identity disorder. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes, or follow along on our website, www.systemspeak.org. Thanks for listening.